0: Welcome, everyone, to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox, and I am here with the wonderful Liz Murphy. Hi, Liz. Hello, Mim. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Liz?
1: Awesome. Back in the cupboard again.
0: Back in the cupboard. And, um, and I'm really excited to be able to introduce this episode to our listeners, Liz, we, uh, you and I both had an amazing conversation with a social worker who um, focuses her work on the drug and alcohol and the gender and sexuality inclusive community. Um, and uh, she was just, because of her own lived experience, has a really interesting way of talking about her practice.
1: I know. I wish I had... I wish all our listeners could have been... Well, not in the cupboard here with me because we wouldn't have been <laughs> able to have practised social distancing, but just to be able to engage in that conversation was fantastic. And we had yeah. to really challenge ourselves to keep it as, at, you know, to the half an hour, didn't we? Could have, could have just kept on talking to Sarah. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So um, let's, uh, let's have everyone listen to this fantastic conversation we had and then let's have a little chat when we come back, all right? I'd really like to welcome Sarah Etta to our podcast to have a conversation with us today. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Mim. Hi, Liz. How are you going? Really, really well. It is so great to have you join us. And um, I, would re- I would like to actually straight away hand it over to you to introduce yourself and give some context to our conversation.
2: Is that all right? Yeah, for sure. First, I just want to say thank you to you both for asking me to do this. It's quite an honor and I love to support and engage in social work in all the different ways. Um, My name's Sarah Etter. I am a proud queer woman. My pronouns are she and they. Um, I've been a social worker for, now I'm getting to the point of my age where I have to count and think. Um, I think over 15 years, most of that time has been held in the drug and alcohol space. Um, And I'm very passionate about Um, working with my community on those specific issues, um, as there's uh, cause for concern in the health disparities amongst um, LGBTQI people in the context of mental health and drug and alcohol um, tend to be worse than than the general population.
0: That's really interesting, Sarah. Thank you so much. And it's great to have you with us. So let's talk a little bit more about that context. Um, in which your work happens. What are some of these health disparities that you're, you've been seeing or you're aware of?
2: So LGBTQI um, people have um, higher rates of suicide, suicide thoughts, self-harm, especially the trans community, particularly suicide, especially the youth trans community with suicide, uh, mental health diagnoses, poor health outcomes, higher rates of smoking, higher rates of drinking, higher rates of drug using. Kind of, kind of across the board. You know what you you want to be better or worse at, where, are worse or or better, if those are words. And um, I think that comes from. It's it can be hard to live in a world that that you're not the normal part of the world. You're not a part of the majority of the world. And through even for me, I'm a I'm a white woman. I'm privileged, but I still experience kind of microaggressions through my day to day. Kind of living that can contribute to my mental health, or maybe my drug using, or my the ways that I access health services. Maybe I'm avoidant because people aren't asking me the questions that are relevant to who I am, and I'm kind of sick and tired of having to lead those conversations and and constantly teach people when I'm really I'm here to access health. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that concept of microaggression is really interesting, Sarah, and um, I wonder if you could give us an example of what that might look like in the, in the health or the, or the welfare context?
2: Yeah, for sure. It can look like a whole lot of things. It's kind of a range of things. And I just want to preface my spiel about microaggressions is that it's not an attempt to guilt anyone. It's an attempt to highlight heaps of opportunities where you can um, kind of improve your language or or your interactions in these types of spaces. Um, A few one microaggression the last time I went to Broadway which sounds particularly fancy and it was pre-COVID I asked someone to show me where the toilet was and they showed me to the male toilet it it wasn't offensive they they weren't like trying to offend me and then what happens after that is they say I'm sorry and they freak out and then I have to patch them back up and then I'm positioned in a place to say it's okay Do, do you know what I mean If you're going to misgender someone, on accident, I'm sure of it, I'm sorry, although well-intended, positions that person to to fix you or to put you back together, when really it's more appropriate to say, excuse me or pardon me, or it's this bathroom. And even more so, to ask someone, if they say, where's the bathroom, say, what bathroom are you after? Not to assume someone's gender. Because I particularly would have said, um, a handicapped bathroom or a unisex bathroom or a non-gendered bathroom is my preference because that's where I feel the safest. That
0: makes so much sense, Sarah, to actually reframe that question so that it's not it doesn't have a gender, agenda, if that makes sense, rather than assuming from the outset.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and those small things are so meaningful because let's say I, when I go out, I mean, I'm not on heightened alert all the time. And I'm kind of aware when these things will or won't happen. But if it, it was at the beginning of the show, and if at the beginning of the show, I had an experience where I asked for the toilet and somebody was like, which toilet are you after? For that whole time that I'm there, I'm not worried about that. I'm like, oh, this is a space that's kind of current, committed to the cause. These are my people. Even if they're not my people, they're allies. And I can feel comfortable here and feel like, I, you know, you know, I can navigate this space without worry. And that that means a lot. And that's me imagine you know the, the disenfranchised people out there old aboriginal heaps of mental health physical health they don't have the privilege socioeconomically disenfranchised and then they have that as well
0: so what does all that
2: mean for you having had
0: those personal experiences yourself and still having those personal experiences how do you translate that into your Identity as a social worker, or your practice as a social worker—that's
2: a really good question, and it's kind of evolved over over time. Where social work never, when I went to social work, we never really spoke about the LGBTQI community. Not from a dismissive place, but it wasn't kind of there or included. And even to this day, it should be far more embedded in in all the universities and, and colleges, or even high school. Um, so as it, so it started with me just kind of identifying as that and all just by proxy of the social work peeps, feeling comfortable there. But then as I became more educated and more firm in my identity, it was more about kind of sharing my experiences with my peers to have that trickle on with them. And, and they were happy to carry that that torch with me. Going further on in my career and kind of being in the decision end of things it's really about trying to get policies and organisations that support that stuff. So it kind of makes it so it's, it's difficult to fall outside of that. So it feels like I'm in a space to be more proactive. Does that make sense? So
0: you can actually impact the culture of the organisation um, moving forward as opposed to just working with individuals around their own experiences.
2: Yeah, and setting up a a culture in an organization. When we look at a person in an environment, which is Social Work 101, when we're talking about the environment, we're talking about their sexuality and their gender and what comes along with that. And we're getting away from these conversations of, Sarah, I don't see you as a queer person. I just see you as Sarah. Because when you just see me as Sarah, you don't see my walk in the world as a queer person. And that's a massive part to me. And you have heaps of opportunities to support me in that or not.
0: Yeah, it's, the, it's like the colorblind statement when people say, I'm colorblind. And then um, the response to that is,
2: we don't want you to be colorblind. We want you to be color aware. Yeah, yeah. And consider that when you're talking to me. Yeah. When you're talking to an LGBTQI person, know that they've experienced microaggressions, probably direct homophobia, probably direct transphobia. It's been considered in, in all the parts of their life that you just don't know about. because Not being. <laughs> just you know directly homophobic is not enough.
1: Yeah. Sarah, um you know you know that I work in health and yep. I just am sitting here shuddering thinking about the experience of the LGBTQI community engaging in some of the mainstream health services for instance the hospitals and and what it must be like to actually enter into those spaces. Um, especially when you're unwell, and especially if you're having a, some trauma that's 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 happening to you, I just even think of those entry points. it must be so um, painful at times and from a health social worker's perspective i'm I'm really interested to hear about how we get better at this, and yet again I'm kind of asking you about your your thoughts on this um, and that must be exhausting too having to be kind of be the the um, the interpreter sometimes you know especially for mainstream health workers
2: and, and just on that it, it it is exhausting but it's only exhausting to me when people don't take it on board like if at the end of this conversation you're going to go out and do what you've always done well then we might have not even bothered but I'm happy to be in these conversations as a way to give back to my to my community so maybe if we have these conversations that will help them in other spaces because their interactions will be better with you. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. And
0: well, now absolutely. you all are committed
2: to, to doing it now. Absolutely.
0: It's like you're contracting with people actually. Like if, if I work with you on this, you then have an obligation to take the lessons that I've taught you and apply them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which can be difficult in a, in a health space I think health people kind of on the ground, if you gave them those lessons, they would be happy to take them on board. But because health is just such a monster, it's just such a big beast. You have to get thousands of people to agree on the way forward and how we're going to talk to them. It's hard to make those kind of really unique but intimate changes instantly. There is opportunity, especially for frontline, even admin staff, because that's often your first point of contact until you get to someone that might be more in the know. And and I, I don't think admin staff are intending to harm anybody or offend anybody. It's just not in their general world or in their general view and their job's not saying this is a thing. So it would be about health and and everyone else committing to upskilling about this learning about this and 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 doing it doing the work with us the other part of that is to find you know i'm happy for it to be me but to find an lgbtqi person after you've done your reading and done your own bit because it's not our responsibility to do everything but you've digested that information and you want to talk about it but you don't talk about it because you think i'm going to offend this person preface it with, hey, I want to have this chat. I think I'm going to fumble through it, but I'd rather fumble through it with you behind closed doors so that when I go out in the world I'm doing it right, is that okay? For sure. And I'll tell you when it's offensive, but I'll also tell you the other language to use.
0: I think that's awesome and I think that's really uh, practical. I really appreciate you kind of stepping
1: it out like that. Yeah. And it highlights the importance of language, uh, Sarah, which is, which is what our social workers use all the time, and what you're offering is um, a really positive gesture. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, about the language that we use, and the, and and what that sounds like. How you, what is it that's different about the language that you use when you're wanting to be um, LGBTQI friendly, like with like you're wanting to actually acknowledge. Um, clients that you're working with and and in a safe way.
2: Yeah, so so, um, ACON have a really good Language Matters resource, which I can send to you all after this. I think one good thing to note about language specific to the trans community, and I don't know the exact data, so I won't try to make it up, but something profound. If you use the gender pronouns that the trans community or that trans person is telling you, especially in youth, you can literally drop their rates of suicide and suicidal ideation. Like that's the power. If you use their name that they're telling you, you, you have the power to, to, it's so affirming for trans people. Using people's pronouns, not preferred pronouns, because this isn't a preference. They're telling you their pronoun and let's get on board with that. And they're telling you their name. If you stuff it up, if you walk into a health service and you, and I'm in there as Samuel and I go, no, actually it's Sam, there's no hesitation. Okay, Sam, you might want to follow it up with what are your pronouns? Which pronouns would you like me to use? And ask asking those types of questions, those are really easy, accessible ways for you to do that. The queer word is often and historically has been, you know, kind of vilified, but now people are identifying as queer. So is it okay to call someone queer? What does it mean when you say that you're queer? It's not asking about, you know, who I'm having sex with at night or how I'm, it's not a private experience. I'm I'm saying I'm queer. So when I say I'm queer, it means that I'm not going to be in any box. The only box that I'm not in is a heterosexual box. That's, that's what it means for me. Being genderqueer means I'm not gonna be in a box. I'm, I'm just telling you I'm not male or female. That's that's what people say. Also understanding that when I say I'm queer and that's what it means to me, to other people, they might have a different iteration of that and accepting that for what it is. The LGBTQI, knowing that alphabet is also a good start. Often people go, LB, oh Sarah, what's the rest of it? Let's just get committed to the acronym. Let's just start there. Um And just a a little pump, the the LGBTQI is moving more towards a gender and sexuality diverse statement, which takes us away from which letter are you to we're just diverse in this space, and that's how we'd like to identify. So when educators in this space are starting to talk about that, because LGBTQI is a bit more known and kind of tangible, just trying to create and interchange using both of those, what we're saying is the same. So that's something you all can do.
0: Yeah, and that makes so much sense to actually get away from a letter and to come to a statement which actually encompasses everyone.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to resist the urge to want to know someone's gender. Why? Why? Yeah. Why?
0: Yeah. And in health, we do that a lot.
2: Yeah. Is is it going to change something? Even in your even I do it. I find myself going oh. And then I say, Sarah, does it is it going to mean that you're nicer, or or what, what will it ever change my interaction if you tell me your gender? It's not if you don't want to tell me, that's fine. Be who you yeah. be. Yeah, Sarah, can I
0: take you um, into a space now to talk about how you practice um, uh, in terms of interventions, social work interventions? And I know that you do a lot of group work with people with drug and alcohol um dependencies and but also in this sexually and gender diverse space Good job, man. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> um and so um so i wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the sorts of work that you do and the sorts of programs or interventions that you really enjoy doing in your work for
2: sure so one of my the my first passion is gender and sexual sexually diverse people. My second passion is for um, a specific modality of of drug and alcohol treatment called the therapeutic community. I love the therapeutic community because it, it is primarily group work. it It acknowledges your peer group as the primary vehicle for change. It doesn't position you as the staff member as the expert. You're the facilitator, you're the you're the guide, if you will, the coach, some people say. The other thing that therapeutic community does really well is it encompasses your whole life. Like we're talking to making your bed in the morning, to knowing how to make meals for your children, to relapse prevention, to emotion regulation, to communication, relationships. How do you actually do your laundry? You know, what's a good structure for your day and for your week? It, It looks at it's a holistic approach to care. It looks at your whole entire life. And models that it's called a um, it's like a micro society is what they say. So it's like it's like a little society within a society, and it really tries to replicate those day to day interactions.
0: Yeah. So so I think we I, I'm just trying to get my head around this a little bit more. So in the group setting, you're saying there is a society or community contract that exists that then replicates what might happen in the outside world.
2: Yeah. So I'll just take it back a, a bit. I have to mm. remember sometimes that not everyone doesn't know about TCs. So, so a TC is a resi rehab. It's a residential space. Okay. People are living there. So let's say you've got 30 people in your therapeutic community. It's hierarchical. So you would have different stages or levels, or so you would have like an assessment stage, a level one or a phase one, two, three, and so on. So up to a senior stage. Um, and, and through those stages, it's increased responsibilities, but it's increased privileges. And the beauty about a therapeutic community is that it's it's kind of trickle-down information. So if I'm in assessment, then a level one or a level two is going to look after me, is going to bring me into the community, and they're being guided by their level threes or their senior peers to look after how you look after bringing someone into the community it creates a norm and a culture that, you know, we're not going to use drugs here. This is how we're going to speak to each other. Um, you, you know, um, this is the language that we've agreed upon using. These are the parameters and the boundaries that we've set up for our community to keep ourselves safe. You know, we don't want to talk about jail experiences and we don't want to you know, make our, this isn't a competition for who used the most amount of drugs. What we want to do is create a community that's safe but the safety and the culture of that community is set by that community. When you set it by that community and you don't position yourself as the expert in a therapeutic community, you give them translatability. So if, if the three of us are in a peer group in a TC, we're being taught ways to communicate with each other, to hold each other accountable. We've practiced being vulnerable with each other. We've shared kind of our deepest, darkest things throughout our treatment. That, that's the, that's the stuff there. When, when we leave and Saturday morning at two o'clock when I'm freaking out because something terrible has just happened, I can't call staff, but you know what? I don't want to call staff because I want to call my peers. I want to call Mim and I want to call Liz because we've lived that experience together and staff have guided us so that we can have this and we don't need them.
0: So it's like a peer healing environment, actually. That's where the, the source of
2: the healing sits. Is from the community, is from your peer group. It acknowledges the peer group as the vehicle for change. Often staff who come to a TC who don't know about a TC, the hardest thing for them to do is to not go in and fix it. Yeah. You, you could go in and fix it probably for sure. You knock it out of the park, but you miss all the teachable moments. What, what does that teach them? It teaches them that they need you to come in and fix it. And it's not just about drugs and alcohol. It's about making your kids calls. It's about turning up to your appointments when you say that you will. It's about, you know, following your recovery plan that looks, going to your psychologist, going to your GP, looking after you. I'm going to hold you accountable for you. And I'm, because if we talk about drug and alcohol, you can talk about drug and alcohol you want, but if you don't talk about the stuff that that drives that, then then there's no point to it. And that matches with social work. We're looking at the person in their environment and a therapeutic community is troubleshooting the intervention by adjusting the environment, and by product of that, we're adjusting the individual.
0: Just um, from an outsider perspective, I would imagine that some people coming into a therapeutic community like this would come in anyway with um, issues with authority or issues with sort of dominant messaging they've heard throughout their lives when you describe that hierarchy of people, I would imagine that might it's getting your head around that um, as a person coming into a therapeutic community in itself could be a challenge. Would that be right?
2: Absolutely, 100%. And that's why therapeutic communities, so old, the therapeutic community model has, has matured as it's gone on. So old school therapeutic communities, kind of you come in, them's the breaks, you get on board or you go. Nowadays, when we're talking about therapeutic communities and we're talking about those specific struggles, we're talking about trauma-informed care. So when we're talking and we're teaching and we're doing psychoeducation, it's not trauma-informed care for the staff and the physical environment. It's also talking to the clients about, hey, it's probably likely that you've experienced a trauma. This is probably what's going to happen for you. And if it does, this is what you should do. And it's likely that one of your peers might you know, be in distress around something that's traumatic that's happened to them. This is what you should do for that. And this is how you come get staff. And this is when you should. And equipping them with that language and knowledge. And the other thing that, this is my own addition to the TC, is love and compassion. Yeah. So when you're in a TC with me and, you, and you're using the different processes that are in place and you're bringing people in, it's not from a, I am a senior, hear me roar, I have all the power in the TC. Essentially, you, you do have a lot But you have a lot of power to deliver your message with love and compassion and to understand who is presenting and to remember, remember when you turned up? It wasn't that pretty, was it? And calling on that, you know, and and a lot of people find that humility in that and gratitude in that. And that's the, the most powerful part in the TC is when you have the most senior member of your house and you have the newest member of your house and you can put them together for that chat and look at that because both people gain and both people benefit from that in a really rich and and unique way.
0: I think that's phenomenal.
2: Thank you, me too.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, um, and you're right, it's a microcosm of society, right? So I would imagine there's also a challenge again of transferring that into the outside world.
2: You know, it's funny that you say that. Sometimes I almost feel guilty it's spending my life creating this loving and compassionate community that we're all here and we're, I mean, there's problems for sure, I can, assur- I can assure you. It's also called controlled chaos. Um, but there is love and compassion. And when you go out there, it's often not, you won't experience it as much as you experience it in, in a TC that's running properly. It, and it's... I, I think you, I, I
1: was thinking when you said that, Mim, um, just what you were saying, Sarah, I wish the outside community was more practiced in compassion and humility. And I remember working, I used to love, when I was working in AntiNATO I used to love working with the women that had come out of TCs because they were just um, ignited, I think, and really excited about um, bringing a child into the world, knowing what they know now and having experienced Maybe they're in your TC, Sarah, because a couple of the women that I know, it was possibly the first time they'd ever been in positive relationships. Their whole language had changed around how they talked about themselves, both to themselves and also to the healthcare workers that were working with them, which just, I mean, the skill was in knowing when to back off, I think, and just the kind of... um, um, I guess providing just positive reinforcement for what they were what they were doing um, in relation to their care and their baby's care but my, my sense is Sarah there's certainly not enough in in well certainly in New South Wales Australia there's not enough um, programs that are run on that that particular model
2: there's so there's there's a few in New South Wales and, and, and in Australia Um yeah, there definitely should be more. And it, I'm not saying, the TC isn't for everyone. It's not. It's for a lot, but it's not for everyone. Res, normal residential rehab does have their space in, in drug and alcohol residential treatment. Just my, and I've seen it and I've been a part of it. When you're in a TC, it doesn't matter if you're at the top or the bottom or on the side, you, you're you a part of it and your voice matters and, it, and, it's, and it's valid and, and we want to hear about it even for me being a staff member and being kind of at the helm of it, I get such a rich, a rich experience from it. I immediately am holding myself accountable to what I'm saying. I'm role modeling. That's the best thing I can do in a TC is to role model as a staff member that when I say I'm going to come see you before I leave today, that I'm going to come see you before I leave today. Having just the reliability that comes from love and compassion and then going out into the world is hard. Yeah, I would imagine. Mm. And that's why a lot of TCs have worked on transitioning back into the community and how we do that. You know, old school TCs, you were kind of there for 12 to 18 months and then you weren't and that doesn't work. And we've learned that. So we we have a transition phase, you know, you transition back into the community and that looks different for every TC, but there's kind of an acknowledgement that coming from this and then going to that, even if it's great, is hard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sarah,
0: thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. Um, I know personally I feel like I've actually learnt a lot through this conversation and I really appreciate it. This is a great addition to, I think, our practice skills on this podcast, isn't it? That we're actually able to have this conversation with our listeners as well.
1: You know, I'm reflecting on the lessons learned from that conversation, Mim, and I'll be interested to hear what yours have been. But from, if I could choose my top uh, three, is about um, being really sensitive in our language. Um, that point that Sarah said about just asking someone about the pronoun they would prefer just going into what they tell you can actually impact on youth suicide. I mean, that just that small act of just being conscious of the language that we use is so important. And the other thing that I really valued about Sarah is the, the, the discussion around the therapeutic communities and, and how interesting that that form of social work practice is and the value to clients who are engaging in that, that form of, of um, I guess, therapy.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I was thinking a lot about how um, more and more in classrooms before COVID hit, I would have students who would um, create a uh, makeshift name tag name, you know, on conferences, people have those things sitting on their desks that they then write their name on. So I would find that students would do that for themselves and write their pronouns, their their, um, chosen pronouns or preferred pronouns. However it said, they would write that on that board so that you knew up front. Then when COVID hit and everything moved to Zoom, I found more and more that people were putting it in their name. You know how you can write what your name is to come up on the screen, the people included in their name. And I, I, what, and I've just kind of observed that and, you know, obviously engaged with people with the correct pronouns and thought it through and tried to be really inclusive and responsive in how I am with people. But what changed for me as a result of the conversation with Sarah was at what point are we going to have that as an expectation on everyone? At what point is it going to be? that everybody should be declaring their pronouns so that gender stops being the issue. It stops being a necessary component, you know, and just thinking through the experience of even going through an emergency department intake system, right? Walking up to the receptionist, uh, who's do, who you have to give your initial details to and then going in to see the triage nurse and then once you actually get through into the emergency department having to then deal with the nursing staff inside and how many times would you be asked your gender in that process? right? How many times would that be not only asked but irrelevantly asked?
1: No you see I don't even think they'd ask I think they would assume. And they would go with what their assumption would be.
0: Yeah, what they saw.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, look, if, if, you know, I work in ED every so often now and um, I can just see that that form now and it's either male, female. There is nothing That's else. That's right. There is nothing else. And I would, I would absolutely suspect that they don't even ask that question. So all I can say at this very moment in time, What we as social workers can do in that that patient or client's trajectory in that health service is take responsibility for how we engage with that person. And I think Sarah's given some really valuable communication tips um, about how we can do that, start to do that. Yeah. I was really interested that we're moving away from the alphabet, as, as Sarah called it, the LGBTQI, and now we're looking at talking about it as gender and sexually diverse. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah and, and that was another lesson that I learnt from, from her, which is really interesting.
0: And really important, like really important. So uh, um, I'm really thankful for that conversation and we um, are hoping to catch up with Sarah again next year because she's doing some really interesting work in this space uh, and we want to hear more about it as we go along. So um, listeners, come on board with the journey that Liz and I are in in this field and um, and uh, let's, uh, let's let Sarah be our guide in that very proactive way that she was talking about where we contract together to actually as not just being educated by her but actually making a commitment to then act on what it is she's she's guiding us in which would be great
1: and as per usual mim we can make a call out to any other social workers that are working in this space and we we'd really enjoy having a conversation or listening to a story from their practice area
0: yeah absolutely how how do they do that liz
1: now I'm just going to shorthand how best to contact us. I could rattle off all the Instagram addresses, the Twitter. I can hear my producer and our our journalist intern, Hamish, just their heads exploding off their shoulders now. But what (laughs) I'm going to say is if you're like me and you just want something to be simple, just Google social work stories and it will come up. Or if you're feeling a bit frisky, go socialworkstories.com. You go straight to our website and from there you can click on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just but you know, like let's just keep it simple, people.
0: You know, it's that it's that struggle that social work always had coming into the technological age and that COVID is it's the gift that COVID has given us where we all now can embrace communicating in all these wonderful ways as simple or complicated as we would like it to be. Indeed. Looking forward to hearing what everybody thinks, though, about that conversation with Sarah because
1: I absolutely loved it, Liz. Me too. Me too. Here's to more rich conversations with wonderful social workers, I say. Absolutely.
0: Take care of yourselves, everyone. Have a good fortnight and we will catch up with you then. Bye.